The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. HBR presents. What the Black community in America and minority communities around the world really have dealt with is generational trauma. For as long as people can remember, they have been going through experiences that are highly stressful, highly traumatic, without any release. And they have had to live their lives in trauma. And what, what's happening right now, it's a re-traumatization. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves back up, and how they help workplaces can change in the future. Today, we zoom in on the mental health impact of this moment. This excruciating moment in the aftermath of the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, where the trauma of 400 years has exploded with new urgency and power into all our lives, even if many of us had the privilege to ignore it before. We will talk with two wise leaders how the pain plays out at work for people of color and how white people need to think about having discussions around police brutality and race in the workplace right now. I speak with Amelia Ransom, Senior Director for Engagement and Diversity at Avalara, and Bina Shah, who is the Chief Growth Strategist at Lupin Thai, and also a lawyer and writer. You will hear me ask questions that I, as a white manager who wants to support Black people, feel anxious asking. Because talking about race, confronting the everyday impact of racism, is something many of us avoid. But we cannot. So I hope this episode is helpful to all listeners, and I would love to hear your feedback. Amelia, um, you work in diversity and employee engagement at a big company, and I wanted to ask you, I mean, we are, the cliche is unprecedented times, but um, really unprecedented times right now. And in your job, how much have you sort of thought through a scenario like this? This this cannot be business as usual with what's happening, um, you know, in our streets and, and with the recent murders. But I would imagine as part of your role as someone who leads diversity initiatives that you have to think about a situation like this, a, a massive sort of reckoning moment about race. Yeah, you know, it's true. I do think a lot about that. In some ways, these are quite precedented times, though. Mm. We've seen this time and time again, you know, from Emmett Till to Rodney King to, you know, I could name a lot of names. So that doesn't feel um, new or different. But you're right in that helping companies think about how do you want to respond? How do you want to show up now? That is something that many companies, um, you know, Avalara included, spend 
a good amount of time thinking about in terms of who we are, what is our culture, what do we stand for? So it makes a response like this easier in that way. Not that the situation is easy, but if you know who you are and you know what you stand for, then it's just about crafting the right thing and and putting the right thing out. It's not about the back and forth of, do we say something? Do we not say something? What do we need to, you don't have to spend all the, the mental gymnastics doing that work. You can just figure out, okay, what's the step we take? Because we already have figured out who we are. That part, I'm grateful that we've done that work and that it isn't about, gosh, we have no idea what we would ever say here. Our CEO was quite clear about that. Mm. I think in this conversation, I want to zoom in on the mental health impact of what's happening, how it plays out in, I was going to say in the workplace, but the workplace is a, is a weird thing right now yes. um, <laughs> for people of color. Um, and actually, you know, an interesting element I remember from talking to you before is that you work with teams globally. So you're working with many different racial and ethnic backgrounds globally. Um, and also how white people need to think about having discussions about pr- police brutality and race in the workplace right now. But I, but I also want to zoom in, um, not on the corporate statement and the corporate position, but on the personal conversations that we may all be having with the people we work with every day. You know, it's interesting over the weekend, a lot of the Black people that I know were hearing from a lot of folks that they either have some sort of professional or tertiary professional relationship with in some way about how can I help? Mm. I don't know what to say. What can I do? And, and what I say to people is you should definitely be reaching out to your friends. If you have, if you have people of color and, and black friends specifically in your network, please be reaching out to them. Imagine if, you know, someone, a friend of yours had a friend or family member pass away and you didn't reach out. Of course you would reach out. That's your friend. But if you're reaching out, it should be to support their mourning and support their grief, not so that you can crawl up on their lap and cry, right? Imagine going to your friend's house who's lost a family member and you walk in the door and center everything on yourself and start crying. And, you know, that would be awkward, you know, ill-advised at best. And so we should really be thinking about how do we center that person and help them create space for their grief. In many cases, to be frank, white people are grieving people they barely even know. There was a study in 2014 that says 75% of white people have no friends that are people of color. In some ways, to be frank, I'm not sure who white people are grieving. I'm not sure what's upsetting them. I, I I really don't know. I don't know if it's the violence that's upsetting them I don't know if it's seeing it on video that makes it hard, but Black people live this experience every day, whether white people are paying attention to it or not. So they spend a little bit of their time and energy and emotional energy grieving nearly all the time. How how do, how do, I can't, of course, speak for all white people, um, I have been trying to ask a lot of questions in preparation, you know. I think that obviously there's a huge element of sort of wanting to help and not knowing what to say. Um, there's 
there's probably an element almost of guilt, of shame, of of wanting to say, but this is not what I stand for. Please don't think this is what I stand for. You know, there's a bit of defensiveness. Um, and I think there is human empathy, you know. Um, I think it's a whole mix of things, and there are so many different motivations. I mean, how do you check in? And I guess, I guess, how are you telling your your people at at your company if they're asking these questions? If they're saying, "I want to be, I want to check in, I want to be empathetic," I don't know what to say if they're a white person or a person of color who's not black. Like, what? Do, where are you telling them to start? Well, I'm telling them to start by creating the space to listen. Hmm. Right? Just create a space. If you have a colleague or an employee and you think they're impacted or affected, just say, I know that this is probably impacting you and I don't necessarily have the right words, but I want you to know I see you. And I know I need to do work on understanding how to see you better. But I want to create space for you if you want that space here or wherever you want that space, because they may not want that space with you. And I too. But seeing it and acknowledging it is absolutely the right thing to do. But allyship and really being an advocate is a different thing, right? Pity isn't purposeful in that regard. So how do you move yourself forward to really be somebody's ally, right? It's that I've taken the time to educate myself. It's that I don't overly lean on my, in this case, Black friends to educate me on all the things I need to know. Right. It's that I, I, I do my work and I come back with some way of asking educated questions or supporting in a more effective and educated way. But I start at first at a human to human level. I see you. I acknowledge you. Right. How can I best support you? Right. I had a colleague reach out to me and say, hey, can I take that agenda for Thursday's meeting? Can I take it and own that for you this week? That was really helpful. Wow. It's a big meeting that I put on and to have my colleague who I absolutely trust say, I, I can take that off your plate. No questions asked. They just reached out and said, they just I'd reached like out. To do this? They wow. reached out. But this is someone that I have trust with. So mm-hmm. I knew exactly that she saw me and understood like your week's going to be slammed. And or you might just need the emotional space to do something else with your time. And I, I remember immediately looking at her message and feeling my shoulders come down and say, oh, that would be terrific. Like, I got it. Don't worry about that agenda for Thursday. I've got it. I'm on it. Check. That's what she can do for me. She can't do a lot of other things to support me, but she can do that thing. And she did it. Reached out proactive and did it. It's what they say about grief, though. Don't just say to someone, you know, if you need me, call me. Say, can I bring meals by on Wednesday or Thursday? Can I babysit your kids on Monday? That, right? Take an action. It's okay if the person says, no, that's not what I need right now. That's fine. But you reached out to take an affirmative action to say, I want to support you, a person I see, know, and care about. A lot of what I've been observing um, among among Black professionals um, on on Twitter, which which has been amazing, is is a sense of I have so much anger, I have so much grief, 
There was an incredible article that that we shared by um, a woman named Shaniqua Golding. She spoke about um, the challenge that she's feeling about, the article is titled, Maintaining Professionalism in the Age of Black Death is a Lot. Mm -hmm. Um, She writes, I just witnessed the lynching of a black man, but don't worry, Ted, I'll have those deliverables to you by end of day. Um, and she talks about, you know, the, the conflict of of grieving, but still having to show up at work because she hasn't technically lost her own family, right? She has to show up at work. She has to go through the motions, but she is grieving. She is angry. Amelia, how how would you explain to her manager <laughs> if it if there, her manager was a white man, for example? Mm-hmm how to acknowledge and honor her, her grief and her anger and her feelings right now. What does she need? She needs that acknowledgement that her grief is real, right? That even if you don't understand it, even if you've never lost a fill in the blank, that you understand that, you know, maybe the way that people can access that who don't understand is, uh, and this would be not necessarily germane just to women, but if you've ever had a miscarriage and you can't talk about it, or you feel like you can't talk about it, but you're grieving, but the world is still going on. You know, that's, it's not the same thing. I'm just trying to give people something that they maybe could have access to in themselves. But imagine if, if, if you were in fear or in danger or, or, or in grief, and you felt like you either couldn't or shouldn't talk about that to people. You lost a loved one, you lost a parent, you lost a friend, and everyone's like, yeah, I heard that. I, I heard your mom passed away. That's, man. Anyway, so what do you think we should do about that? Right? And, and people just moved on. It would, feel, it would feel jolting and jarring. But I think what, what I took away from that article also isn't just I watched this thing that you also watched. It's I'm watching this all the time and you're not paying attention to it. This is not what, what black people. And again, just as you said, you don't speak for all white people. I I certainly can't speak for all black people, but the experience in the main, I believe is it's not just George Floyd. George Floyd is tragic and horrible, but there are men and women, black men and women whose names most white people will never know that have had a similar experience. And maybe it wasn't on videotape and maybe it was before the age of Twitter, but it existed. So we're living with that trauma on a regular basis. You're living with that fear. Am I the next hashtag? Is it me? Is it my husband? Is it my sister? Who, who is it? And so when you live with that and it can happen at any moment, it's, it's frightening and you live with that I don't know if it's it's technically anxiety, but you're living with that on a regular basis as part of your psyche. It becomes magnified when other people are watching it also, and then depending on you for their grief. Say more about that. Well, you know, in there's there's a lot of conversation now about protests and rioters and all this kind of stuff and you know why are people protesting and having to answer the questions for people that for many black americans feel very obvious 
violence is what we listen to in this country. It, it is, it is, it is how we respond to things. You know, we have, I mean, let's, you know, let's go to an example about somebody we really like, like this country really likes right now, Martin Luther King. In 1968, he was vilified and nobody liked him, but now we really like him. But, you know, we got a fair housing act after he was assassinated, right? We respond to violence. We have a 1964 Civil Rights Act because of the deaths of Kennedy and like in 64, like this is what we have. We have a Voting Rights Act because John Lewis nearly got himself killed going across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. This nation has trained people to be violent. And so when you say, I don't understand why we do this, it's because it's the language we speak in this nation. And answering those questions again and again and supporting people who say, I don't understand why this is happening is, can be very tiring and exhausting and puts the, the blame and the shame on black people in a sense, because it's like, well, why would you do that? Why would you burn down your community? Right? A, this, that's not what most black people do. Most black people are protesting, not rioting. Those are two different, right? Two different terms, two different things that are happening. Looters are looting, protesters are protesting. In many cases, those communities that you're talking about don't belong to us. So again, it's that, it's that supporting the grief and the questions that in many cases feel very obvious about who we are as a nation um, and, and trying to help other people navigate them when it really, in some cases, doesn't feel like we're trying to solve the underlying problem of why we are a nation like this it is that we're trying to solve the problem of how can I get this off my news feed and how can I stop having to be inconvenienced by these, quote, protests, riots, you know, fill in the blank term and mm-hmm. to normal. Right. When back At- to normal for Black people would be more of the same. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. This does make make everyone anxious, of course, right? Mm-hmm. It, it compounds the fear that we've all been feeling about the economy and the pandemic. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like we were in um, easy times before what's happened erupted. And so I understand the anxiety, but I do think you're right that for many, many white people, it's just a sense of, can we just move on? Yeah. <laughs> the, the fear. So can I give you a hypothetical? Sure. You can so imagine you're a young black woman and um, your older white boss says something like that, like, you know, gosh, I, I, you know, I was behind the protesters, but man, I mean, why do they have to resort to violence? Like, this is, you know, blah, 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 blah. What do you say if you're that young black woman? I might take a few different tacks. One is I'm very fond of handing people books. 
So I would choose a book and hand it to that person and say, I'm going to put some time on your calendar in two weeks or whatever the time frame is, you know, <laughs> depending on maybe the thickness of the book to have that conversation with you again. Because it will tell me how curious you are about the answers. How curious are you to really know? Information has been has never been more free. Now, again, I say that with some privilege attached to it. Wi-Fi is not free. Lots of downloads are not free. I understand that. But there's a lot of free information out there and offer information at a nominal cost. So if I have a manager, I can make some assumptions about my manager. They're employed. They might have some disposable income. So you could pick a book. And let's have a conversation about that book, which I've done with leaders. That demonstration of curiosity is interesting to me because I find that people aren't nearly as curious as they sometimes present to be when you really ask them to go deep on a topic. Do you really want to know? Because I can help you know. Do you just want to know that two and two is four or do you want to understand computational skills? Like, you got to pick one. Both of them, you can know. But if I tell you that two and two is four, you don't understand what to do if somebody says how many people are in that room. You don't understand the skill to use to determine how many people are in that room because you don't understand computational skills. You just know the factoid that I gave you, two plus two is four. So I, I like to give people a book and I like to ask the question, tell me why you want to know. You know, why are people doing this? Tell me why you'd like to understand that because it bothers you, because you have to talk to your children about it, because you like, tell, tell me your reasoning for wanting to know. Because honestly, it tells me how deeply I'm going to engage in the conversation with you about it. If you want to know because it's disturbing your timeline or because you can't go to your favorite market or do your favorite thing or you're stuck in traffic, I'm likely to walk away. In, in the scenario that you pose, I'm this person's employee Right. There's power dynamics at play, too. I still think it's a helpful question to understand. Tell me why you want to know, because it actually can help me answer your question. It gives me information that helps me serve up information that could be helpful or the resources to you that might be helpful as well. Let's flip this scenario. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so if you're a manager and a, a person of color or a Black person... What are you? What are you doing? I guess what ask what What are you doing in terms of proactively, um, either giving space for grief or trying to? Are you trying to educate white people on your team? Are you letting them come to you? What is that? What does that flow of information look like? It's a little different for me because I do the work of inclusion and anti racism work. Right. So That's your your professional. I, right. And so it's my profession. So yes, I am engaging in those conversations. But if you're not a person whose whose role that is, then you're likely having a different response. So the black people that I know that you know do not have the same profession as me are really um, creating different boundaries in different ways for themselves. Some are really happy to have that conversation with people. Some are like, I don't really want to have this conversation. And I think all of those things are fine. What I'm saying to people is, and I said this yesterday to a group of people, I don't actually need you to talk to Black people more. I need you to talk to each other more. Hmm. 
the problem of racism will not be solved by you going to talk to Black people. I think we're clear about the experience of Black people. I think Jane Elliott's question that, you know, it's it's gone viral on, on um, social media of her asking an audience of white people, please stand up. If you would like to have the experience that Black people in this country are having right now, please stand up. If you mm. trade places with them, stand up and nobody stands up. So I think we're clear. Right. Right? So I don't need you to talk to more Black people. I need you to talk to more white people. I need you to talk to your children early and often. Not talking to your children about race isn't the same thing as telling your children actively about how to not be racist. You would not leave to silence topics like sex or drugs or alcohol. Your position as a parent is clear on those things in your household if you have children. And you say it often. But we don't have these conversations about race. And then we say things like, oh, kids don't see color. Your kids see color. You're just not talking to them about it. And the people that are going to influence them about that topic then, if you don't, are the extremists. That's right. They are talking about it often. I I invite people to do more work like that. Why does talking about race make us so anxious? Ooh. Okay. Which answer do you want here? I want your I want your answer. Because I think white people are afraid that we want revenge and not justice. Mm. I think people know. I think white people know every time that they've let an offensive comment slide because there was no Black person in the room. I think they know every time that they've gotten a little nervous when they saw somebody they thought was, quote, out of place, but they didn't say anything and they acted normal. I think they know. And I think articulating that, I think we're afraid that, I think white people are afraid that your slip is going to show. And I think the anxiety of the truth, it's, listen, it's on some level, not the same level, I want to be clear, but it's on some level the reason I don't read always the back of packages of food that I like, because I don't want to know that there's too many calories in that for me. I don't want to know. It's good. I like it. I want to eat it. So if you have to be faced with it, then it's an active decision. As long as I don't know and I don't understand that that the way that I think and the way that I'm presenting myself is indeed racist, then I don't have to face that. Well, this is this is what I talk about on the show all the time is that, you know, we all we don't like to sit in uncomfortable feelings and we work very hard to make our lives um, as free of them as possible. It's so true. And we do that in lots of ways. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I'm very fond of saying I'm a person that doesn't like to work out, (laughs) but I don't like it. And I'm very fond of people. There are only two ways to make squats stop hurting. Keep doing them or stop doing them. It's up to you. Only one of them, though, gets you to the goal of being more healthy and more fit or you know, whatever your, your, your goals are. 
but you could stop doing them too. And they won't hurt, but you won't get to the goal. And that's the same thing as talking about race. If we never exercise the muscle of being uncomfortable, we will never have the society that we say we want. The daylight between who we say we are and who we really are is going to get more bright. My last question for you um, is about filling space with talking. Mm. <laughs> um I, I think that a lot of us, no matter what color you are, we get anxious, feelings get uncomfortable, and we talk. We mm-hmm. fill space. We try to solve problems instead of sitting in someone's feelings and acknowledging them. Do you have any advice, especially if you're a manager and, and theoretically your job is to solve problems about mm-hmm. um, practicing listening and, and, and letting space be uncomfortable for you? I love this because I think as leaders, it's really important to understand that sometimes problems are best solved by listening, not by talking, by letting, just sort of letting the free flow of thoughts or ideas or just space and silence fill the space. And from on a practical note, what I'll say to leaders is if you reach out to someone and say, I see you, I acknowledge you, I want to support you, please help me understand how to support you or, or something like that, whatever feels authentic for you. Don't let that be, and the person says, no, nothing. Don't let that be the last time you ask. Ask again. And when someone talks and they share with you, do not try to find the example in your life that fits what they're saying, (laughs) right? I listened to a leader, this is some time ago, and someone was sharing really authentically this interaction with police. And the other person in the room said, yeah, because I got pulled over one time and you should have seen the look. I, I was like, imagine. do you really think you getting pulled over is the same thing as her getting pulled? Like, you do see the difference between you two. You are a white cisgendered male. Oh. She's a black woman. These are right. not the same thing. Right? So don't try to find the equivalents. When that person shares it, ask this question. Would you mind sharing more? And letting them go deeper. It's the, it's, what is that, that that you learn in college? The five whys, mm-hmm. right? It's <laughs> tell me more and then letting them go deeper and tell me more. You're not trying to solve like the five whys for a root cause. You're just trying to understand more. But every time you let someone go deeper with you, they're testing it, right? They're saying, can you handle it? But you ask someone, how are you doing? And they say, I'm fine. And you say, hey, no, really talk to me. How are you doing? And they say, oh, you know, my kid, I'm working on their Zoom homework. It's kind of hard. And you go, gosh, tell me more. And you say, gosh, you know, they've really been acting out. And right, they go deeper every time. They tell you a little bit more if you make the space for it. So that's what I recommend leaders do. Just make the space and know that. Trust me. I promise you. 
Black employees are not looking for you to solve their individual problems. Because again, racism is institutional and structural and individual. The challenges that lead us to George Floyd will not be solved by a mid-level manager <laughs> in your company. It, it will I'm, not be solved. I'm sorry to laugh. It just, right? when you say it like, yes, of course. We are, and we are not looking for you, you know, Ted, as, as, the, as the woman in the article calls it, we're not looking for you individually to solve it. I am looking for you to take it away and have a deeper conversation with some other white people. Ted. Ted, right? Thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm grateful you took the time with me. Um, and I hope, you know, we can reach a lot of folks. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful for you using your platform um, for this. Howard Stevenson, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, tells us that racial literacy is the ability to negotiate and navigate racial conflict. I must admit, I'm not terribly racially literate. I have said racist things in my own life many times. I've shut up when I should have stood up. I want to do better. Stevenson says, when we think of conflict, people may have to make decisions about what to say and how to respond in less than two minutes. They can get very anxious, tongue-tied, and stutter. I think this is probably happening a lot in workplaces all over the world right now. So Beanish's work has been very helpful to me as a guidepost, and I think to many white people, especially in the past week. Here's my interview with Beanish Shah. So I think that the best way to understand what's happening right now is through the lens of trauma. And trauma is not necessarily one individual incident that happened to you where, for example, you were walking down the street and you saw someone you love get hit by a car. Trauma can include a series of events that happened to you over the course of time or happen around you to a community through a, you know, a long period of time. And what the Black community in America and minority communities around the world really have dealt with is generational trauma, which means that for decades, for centuries, for as long as people can remember, they have been going through experiences that are highly stressful, highly traumatic, without any release. Mm. And they have had to live their lives in trauma and what, what's happening right now, it's a re-traumatization of that trauma. And I think that we may not be able to understand each other's experiences from a race perspective, but I think that there is so much literature out there on just trauma that if you start there, it'll be easier to relate to. Mm-hmm. And so your advice is that, that people can literally Google trauma response or how to respond to a friend in trauma? Absolutely. Like I had an, an email come through from uh, a friend asking, can you please explain that further? And I gave her examples of text messages. When you know your friend just went through something really badly, how would you text them to check on them? How would you check to see how they were doing? And re- that's the thought process you should be going through right now 
when you are trying to understand how to reach out to your Black friends, colleagues, or even other people of color. You wrote some other guidelines in uh, a piece on on Medium, and I'd love to walk through um, a few of them that I think are so clear <laughs> um, and, and were instructive to me. Um, the first one is, is you write, it's your job to listen, not debate. Yes. So the, the reason that I bring that up is that often when we talk about something that feels political or where you feel like you have your own viewpoint, it is natural to say, well, have you thought about it from this perspective? Or is that X thing that's really happened? And this goes back to trauma yet again, which is that when a person is traumatized, debating with them on whether the thing that caused them trauma really should have caused trauma or not is not the right way to approach any conversation. And what ends up happening in those situations is that Person A, who is not affected, is talking to person B, who is deeply affected. Person B now has to relive their trauma in order to explain to you why their trauma happened, why it is so important, why it needs to be understood. And that is a very deep toll that takes on a person's psyche and their emotional resilience while person A is coming at it from an academic perspective and does not understand why the person in front of them is getting emotional. It's very easy to be calm and collected when you are not affected, when you are person A. It is very difficult to have to continuously have those conversations when you're a person B. And then also on top of it, has someone tell you, well, you're being emotional and you're not being rational. Mm -hmm. The idea Mm -hmm. that you would expect traumatized individuals to continuously have to be well-spoken, intellectualized, and calm and collected just shows that we're incapable of empathizing with the person that's in front of us. And that is what so many Black people have dealt with constantly in the United States. And it's honestly... Until we can get to the point where you realize that this is about someone's life and their ability to live and not about politics, that conversation will never be equal. Right, right. And and I think even with, um, I have found this over and over again myself, I make a a comment that seems banal to me Mm -hmm. because I am not personally affected yesterday. I was I was interviewing Amelia Ransom for this show and I said, you know, it's 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 a cliche but we are living in unprecedented times and she said, "Oh no, no. Mm-hmm. These times are are very precedented." Yeah. And and I just threw out that line, right? And yet I was wrong. But I think that's okay. I think it's actually okay to be wrong because you have to as long as you're open to being educated on that moment. Mm-hmm. And there is no perfect response to trauma. There's no perfect response to what is going on right now. Um, I think it's important to continuously educate ourselves. So we are learning to say the right things that we are, you know, being empathetic. But I think it is very critical to remember that we're going to make mistakes in what we say. All of us are. And Mm -hmm. 
we have to own them when they happen and we have to learn from them as opposed to shying away from the conversation because we're scared that we're going to do it wrong. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Okay, well, here's here's another one of your guidelines, and and it's funny because... um, I listened to a coworker literally do this on a conference call, um, and 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 we had a debate about he felt had felt actually it was the right thing to do for his team, Mm -hmm. and I didn't know. So you say, do not open the floor to discussion. This this might be a surprise to many managers who think I'm being empathetic. I want to hear people. How do you feel? Why do you say no? Well, I think if you're going to open the floor to discussion, um, you should first check with the Black people who are on your team as to whether they're comfortable with that or not. And if that means you have to individually reach out to 100 people, you need to individually reach out to 100 people. Because the conversation around this and the desire to have a conversation around this in an open forum, especially in the workplace, is also difficult for people of color. Because historically speaking, we're penalized for it. Black people are definitely penalized for it. If you show emotion, you become the angry black person in the room. If you show emotion, you become the person playing the the race card in the room. If you aren't willing to sit there and educate each individual calmly, then you're not being productive. You're not being a team player. And you are opening the floor and you're helping everybody else except for the black person in the room and except for the other people of color in the room, because you're putting them in a position where they have to deal with questions. They have to deal with discussions they may not want to deal with in that moment. So unless you have their permission to do so, you're only doing it because you want to feel comfortable. You want to feel like you did something. And this goes back to our trauma conversation, which is often people when dealing with others who have faced trauma, will do whatever they can to make themselves feel better that they did something. And that's never the right approach. The approach of being sensitive, again, it's more difficult. It takes a little bit more time. It requires thoughtfulness. But I think this is an example that I can use. And this is, again, this is a perspective of a brown Muslim female. This is not the perspective of a black person. And we have to be very clear about that. They're not comparative. But I remember that post 9-11, if you were a hijabi in a room 
and you were sing you were just continuously singled out and everyone felt like they could ask you whatever they wanted to they could say whatever they wanted to the um, the types of things people said and asked you know was in the guise of well it's a question but it was such a brutalizing question in those moments where you know we're so colonized we were all like okay well you know we just have to be nice about it and that's a situation you you're putting people of color in when you open the floor and if you're gonna open the floor you got to do it incredibly responsibly and then you as a manager also have to make sure that you are watching that room like a hawk for microaggressions for subtle racism for overt racism and that you are in a position where you immediately squash that the second it happens. So unless you're aware, like that's just not something I would do. So, well, and the complicating factor now that you might even be on Zoom, right? Or or a video call where you can't, it's much harder to read anything. So what should what should, and I should say that this 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 you you are writing these guidelines specifically for the perspective of a white manager, mm-hmm. so that's the framework that we're discussing yes. in. Um, actually, in a minute, I want to ask you a question about a manager of another race. But but what what should you do? Because it, if you want to acknowledge the weight of what's happened, you want to affirm your feelings about it. I think that you can give a statement of support. I think Mm -hmm. that you can do a lot in, especially right now, since we are all remote, a written Slack message that says, you know, this is what is happening. This is how I feel about this. This, and I am here. My door is open. Um, If you want to have the day off, you take the day off. If you need to skip meetings, you just message me privately and we will make that happen. And you create space. You constantly create space and then you constantly ensure that space is safe because it's very easy to do lip service and say, oh, I support everything that's happening and I'm so sorry that America is going through this and, you know, black lives matter. But then when it comes down to it, you also say, Oh, but that deadline still has to be met or it's okay. If someone said that to you, like, don't take it seriously. If that's what you're going to say, then you might as well say nothing at all and just it, you know, kind of own up to who you are. But if you're going to make those statements, if you're going to show your support, then you have to show your support you know, from end to end, there's no 50%ing it here. What if you're a manager um, who's a person of color, um, but not black? Are there different guidelines, no. you think, for him? No. <laughs> no, I think the same thing. Okay. I think the same thing applies. <laughs> because I think the, the issue that we run into is that we conflate the black experience with the people of color experience. But you have to understand that so many minority communities have come to the United States really on the backs of the civil rights movement. And so we benefited from that movement that Black Americans, you know, risked their lives in for decades. And so we never experienced that level of racism and that level of trauma in America for the amount of time that Black Americans have dealt with it. Yes, Muslims have dealt with it a lot from 9-11 onwards, 
But prior to that, yes, there was racism, but it was not to the degree that Black Americans have faced it. And also, we fall into the world of being called a, quote, model minority, which just means that so many Asian and South Asian minorities are looked at as non-threatening, whereas Black Americans are looked at as threatening. And that, by its nature, creates a difference between the experiences immediately. And so people of color that are not Black, if you're a brown manager, it is still your job to be equally as sensitive. The only difference, I think, is, is you can take it upon yourself to make sure that you're the first line of defense from people asking your Black colleagues questions um, mm. and you're making yourself available. Almost like I came <laughs> to you. I mean, we, we laughed yeah. about this the other day. Yep. But <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I think even then, right, like, if you're a brown person having that conversation, I think you have the conversation, you educate as much as you can, but you still make it really clear that this moment is about about black lives and black bodies and black liberty and the black experience. And as a brown person, I can step in and try and create guidelines to help people not say the wrong things, but I cannot speak for black Americans. It's just not the place that I can come from. Bina Shai, I want to thank you so much for your work. And um, I want to wish you good health and, um, and safety and well-being. Thank you. You too. Thanks for chatting with me about this. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend or rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a question or a topic that you'd like to see featured on the show, you can email anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Many thanks to Mary Dew, my amazing producer and the team at Harvard Business Review. And of course, to our advertisers who keep us going and my guests. And if you like the Anxious Achiever music, It's by Brian Campbell at Signal Sounds NYC. From HBR Presents, this is The Anxious Achiever. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy.